God bless you, Brother Ian. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, I'll ask you to move that. Yeah, there we go. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, in case you wonder, I'm not Brother Eric. Uh, we had kind of an emergency thing come up, and uh, so he called and asked if we could come, and we're delighted to be here. So while you turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, which will be the basis of our remarks this morning, I just want to tell you that this is not the first time that our experience together is a little unusual because of the COVID thing. I don't know whether you know it or not, but I was scheduled to be with you for three Sundays in November while Brother Eric and maybe his family, I don't know, were going to be gone. And Mary and I came down with COVID-19. And at uh, our age, particularly my age, and all of the, you know, the uh, ongoing issues in my cardiac kind of stuff, you know, I'm a prime candidate for it. So, you know, we had to cancel a few things and sit around for a couple of weeks. But fortunately, by the grace and the purposes of God, our case was from mild to moderate. It wasn't all that bad. I've had the flu worse. In fact, I'm not sure. That, that I don't usually feel worse than I felt a lot of the times in that two weeks. But uh, it was gone rather quickly. We endured the two weeks, of course. And so then uh, Eric called me this week and said he'd been exposed. He doesn't have it, of course, but has been exposed. And so as protocol, uh, he needed to be quarantined today. And we don't know how long that's going to last. My understanding is that if he has to remain for next Sunday, I'll be back with you next Sunday. If he's released, then he'll be here. But we'll make a go of it, whatever we have to do, okay? And uh, by the way, you're upholding Baptist tradition rather well. I have discovered over the years of pastoring and preaching in Baptist churches that the very best-looking people always show up for the first service on a Sunday. And you have continued that tradition. I've just paid you a compliment, you know, whether you know it or not. I wasn't sure. But anyway, we're glad you're here, whatever you look like, you or me or anybody else, all right? Let's stand together in honor of the Word. We're going to read one verse of Scripture, and of course, it's not going to take a lot of time to read it, but I'm going to give a little interpretive work while we remain standing for a moment, then we'll be seated and we'll get into the message. Luke, uh, the book of Acts, written, of course, by Luke, but the book of Acts chapter 2 Verse 42. It begins this way, and they. Now we're going to stop for just a moment and figure out who the they are. Because whatever follows in verse 42 is spoken specifically of that group of people called they. Now who are they? Well, they're the ones mentioned in verse 41. Peter preached his message on Pentecost, gave an invitation like any good. Southern Baptists would do uh, on Pentecost anyway, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And so verse 42 is a reference to those 3,000 people. Now notice what it says, and they continued steadfast. 
Now that little phrase, continued steadfast, means that with all of their heart and all of their mind, they were devoted to something. And then it lists some things they were devoted to. They were devoted to the insightful study of the Word of God. That's what the doctrine of the uh, uh, is talking about when it says uh, the apostles' doctrine. They wanted to have insightful study of the Word of God. Second thing they wanted was to enjoy each other and fellowship. Now this fellowship, not talking about sitting at a meal and eating, it's talking about, uh, that's mentioned later in this passage, Acts chapter 2, but this is a word which specifically is talking about people. In other words, they had a heart and a mind to be committed to enjoying each other as they grew in the insight of the Word of God. Then the third thing that they did is they had that heart and that mind committed to the Lord's table because it is referenced here with the breaking of bread, but that's not talking about eating. That's specifically a reference to the Lord's table. Now, all these 3,000 people who got converted on that first day of Pentecost in the New Covenant, uh, they had a heart and they had a mind to learn the Word of God, to enjoy each other in fellowship, and to experience the reality of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus around the Lord's Supper. And then the final thing is they had a heart and a mind to uh, embrace the presence of God in their life. You say, Brother Paul, where is that? Well, it's in the word prayer. And so we're not going to be dealing with the first three things they did. We're going to be dealing with the one thing, the last thing mentioned. They had a heart and a mind devoted to prayer. But I'm going to show you something about that word prayer that I think is going to be very, very helpful to you today, and we'll look at it for the rest of the time, all right? Be seated now, if you will. If Brother Eric had sent all of you an email and said, I'm going to be out this next Sunday, but my friend Paul Burleson is going to come, and he's going to talk to you about the subject of prayer if you're the average kind of Christian, kind of the group that I belong to, uh, you would have had the thought that I usually have when I find out somebody's going to teach or preach about prayer, and that is, oh, no. <laughs> Here comes the guilt. Here comes the should. Here comes the shame. In other words, who of us uh, are really praying like we feel like and believe we ought to pray. Certainly like the Scripture says we ought to pray. I'm not. In fact, I have discovered that prayer is one of the hardest things in my Christian life. That's the reason I know it's so important. I really do believe that prayer is one of the significant issues of the believer's life, but I don't think it's significant because I have a great prayer life because I don't. But it's because it's the hardest thing for me to do. I can go to church and listen to sermons. I can go to church and read the Bible and study Scripture. I can go out and even share my faith and witness and talk about Jesus with some, someone who maybe hasn't heard the gospel, or at least I'm hoping will be influenced by the gospel. I can do all of those things a whole lot easier than I can pray. 
Several years ago, I was pastor of First Baptist Church in St. Joe, Texas, and I was a student at seminary. And uh, so I was pastoring a church. Mary and I were married. We had three of our four children at the time. I was a husband, a father, a pastor, a seminary student, and I was exhausted. But I got under conviction because I read the biography of a fellow by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller was a man that they called Old Camel Knees. And the reason for that is because George Mueller spent so much time in prayer that he had literally developed uh, the, the knees of a camel. In other words, the calluses of his own knees had kind of gotten callous like the knees of a camel have because he kneels on his knees all the time. So they called him Old Camel Knees. And I read George Mueller's biography, and man, did I get under conviction. Here I am pastoring a church, having a family, a student in the seminary, and praying is the least thing I do in my life. So I never will forget, I decided one time I was going to spend an hour in prayer. One Monday morning in my office, I got down on my knees on the couch, the little couch that was there, and I began to pray. And I mean, I prayed for Mary. I prayed for our kids. I prayed for our extended family members. I prayed for our church family. Remembered as many names as I could. Then I prayed for my seminary professors. And uh, after all that prayer, I looked up and 10 minutes had gone by. Well, I wasn't to be outdone. I decided, man, I'm going to pray an hour. So I got back down on my knees and I started praying again. Prayed for Mary again, my kids again, extended family, church members. And then it dawned on me, now wait a minute, Jesus said, don't think you'll be heard for the many words that you speak in prayer. He said that about the Pharisees who prayed five times a day. And I got under conviction again. Never did work it out. A few years later, a little plan by the name of 2959 put out by Peter Lord came into existence, and I began to use that. That helped a little bit. But all my life, I have struggled with this thing called prayer. So a few years ago, I decided, I'm going to find out what the Bible says about prayer. What a novel idea. Go to the scriptures to find out what the Bible says about prayer. Do you know what I discovered? I discovered there are four basic words in the Greek language that are translated prayer. Three of them have to do with an attitude, and only one of them has to do specifically with asking and requesting. Now, the three attitude can be used for requesting in prayer, but it's always in the context of having an attitude. In other words, the Bible says that prayer is an attitude in our life three times more often than it is a speaking words or requesting of things. And then I discovered that the number one word used for prayer in the New Testament is a Greek word that is pronounced in English, prosuske. Three syllables, prosuske. It's a Greek word that uh, is used 37 times in the New Testament. By the way, that happens to be the word that is used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They had a heart and a mind to study the Scriptures, to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy the Lord's table, and to experience the presence of God in their life every day that they lived. That's translated prayer in the New Testament. 
You see, those 3,000 people that got converted on Pentecost, they had never experienced the presence of God in their life, ever. In fact, the only time they ever experienced God's presence was one time a year, on one day a year, in one place in the city of Jerusalem, and only one man, the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies, and all the rest were separated. Now, they're being taught by the apostles' doctrine that prayer is learning to live in the very presence of God and enjoying His presence every moment that you live. Now, of course, prayer means specifically requesting certain things also, but the emphasis of the New Testament is that prayer is an attitude of experiencing God's presence in our life. It's living face-to-face. It's an attitude with not necessarily a vocalization to it at all, but it is maintaining an attitude of consecration, living in the very presence of God. That's what Acts 2.42 is talking about. Now, if you understand that, that real prayer in the New Testament is learning to experience and live in the presence of God who is in your life because of Christ, the Holy Spirit creating his presence in our life. If we learn that that's what prayer is in the New Testament, now the scripture begins to make a little more sense. For example, example, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You can't pray without ceasing if prayer is only bowing your head and closing your eyes, folding your hands, getting on your knees and talking to the Lord. If that's the only thing that real prayer is, then you could never pray without ceasing. By the way, Ephesians 6.18 says, pray at all times. And that word means all without distinction. All times. In other words, if prayer in the New Testament was primarily bowing on our knees, folding our hands, closing our eyes, and talking to God about things, then we could not pray at all times. But that's not what the New Testament says prayer really is. It is a heart and a mind committed to, devoted to, experiencing the reality of God in our lives. Now, that leads me to say three things about what I call attitudinal prayer. I don't know whether you've ever heard that word or not. I hadn't. In fact, I thought and I still think that I coined that phrase when I first prepared this message uh, several months ago to preach it for the very first time. The thought came to me, attitudinal prayer. That's what this word, prosuske, is describing. That's what those 3,000 new Christians on the day of Pentecost had in their hearts and their minds to experience the presence of God. Not one day a year like in the temple in Jerusalem, but every day that they lived, they were living in His presence. And when they learned that, they were living in prayer according to the New Testament. So, we're going to look this morning at three different things that will help us grasp this concept. The first thing I want us to see is what I call the definition of attitudinal prayer. The definition of attitudinal prayer. Here it is. Prayer, according to the New Testament, is an atmosphere or an attitude in our mind and our heart that our spirit 
is in communion with God who is spirit because of our relationship with him through Christ and his work on the cross. That's the definition of attitudinal prayer. It's that sense of a relationship that we have with God, the Father, because of who Jesus is and what he did, and that relationship is real 24-7. And when I begin to learn to experience that relationship, I'm a person of prayer according to the definition of the New Testament. Now, what kind of relationship do we have with it? Well, it could be described in many ways. One of the ways it's described by Paul the Apostle is in Romans, he says we're married to Christ. The kind of relationship we have with the Father is we're married to Him because of the person of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom, we're the bride. We're married to God the Son. See, that's what the Scripture says. Now, I'm married, I'm in a covenant relationship with a woman. It is, according as I understand Scripture, to be a lifetime commitment of a covenant relationship. And you know what kind of relationship we have with God the Father because of Jesus? We have a lifetime commitment of an intimate relationship where we're living in His presence. Ladies and gentlemen, you don't anymore come to this building to get into the presence of God than the Jews had to go to temple, the temple in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached. Peter showed them the reality of Christ is ours every moment of every day. And those 3,000 Christians learned that and their heart was geared toward it. So we are married to Christ. Now what do you do with a partner to whom you have a with whom you have a covenant relationship in your life. Will you share things? Uh, you know, I've always had a little bit of a bone to pick with that dumb commercial at Christmas that comes out where this guy on Christmas morning brings his wife out and there sets these two new automobiles, you know, a, a, an SUV and a pickup, and one's black and one's red, and she's just shocked. Oh, how wonderful. She runs to the pickup, and oh, well, he'll take the red one, you know, but you know, can you imagine a guy buying two brand new vehicles and never talking to his wife about it? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. I'll tell you what, if I bought two new vehicles, even for Christmas, to give one to Mary and me have one, I would be facing, if not murder, at least divorce. You understand what I'm saying? Now, ladies and gentlemen, the same way with us as God's people. We are to live our lives in a relationship with Christ where we're in communion and commitment to Him in everything in life, you wouldn't anymore decide to buy something without relating it to the person of the Lord Jesus, how this is in my walk with Him, than anything in the world if you understand what real prayer is all about. That's the definition of prayer. It's because of our relationship with Him that we can live in that kind of communion with Him. But we're not only ma married to Him, we are a servant of His. This is according to James chapter 1. Now, if I'm committed to Jesus as his servant, 
that it means that He's the one who gives the orders for my day. He's the one who gives direction to my day. Ladies and gentlemen, the Scripture says our relationship with God is one of being a servant. It's one of being married to Christ. But then there's another reference in John 15 about our relationship, and it's where we are called His friends. The Jewish people knew about Moses. The Bible says Moses lived face-to-face with God. Now, that word face-to-face does not mean literally. It's what's called in, it's in uh, Exodus 33, verse 11, where it says Moses went face-to-face with God. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's a phrase which means something kind of metaphorically. Have you ever heard the English idiom or the English phrase, he spilt the beans? Now, you're not saying he spilt a bowl of beans. He could do that, but that's not what you're talking about. When you say, oh, he spilt the beans, what you're saying is he knew of something secret and he let it out by talking with it. You ever heard somebody say, the cat got your tongue? Now, they're not saying, which tomcat got your tongue? It's not a literal thing. It's an idiom. It means uh, you're not speaking. You're not talking. Has the cat got your tongue? Now, when the Bible says Moses lived face-to-face with God, it doesn't mean literally in his face because God doesn't have a face. He's spirit. It's an idiom which means intimacy, closeness in a relationship. And in that Exodus 13, 11 verse, it says, and God was to him a friend. Now, that's the third relationship. We're married to Jesus, according to Paul. In James 1, we are a servant of the Lord Jesus, of course. But in John 15, it says he calls us his friend. Now, a friendship is a close relationship discounting the physical. We discount the physical in marriage when we talk about being married to Jesus. Nothing physical. Friendship, nothing physical. It's a relational uh, thing that we have with someone who is very, very close to it. Now, the Scripture says because you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, because you're married to Him, because you're a servant of His, because He calls you His friend, you have the privilege, as do I, of living in intimacy with Him, closeness with Him. And when the Scripture describes these 3,000 folks who came to Christ when Peter preached his message, it describes them as people who had a heart and a mind set on experiencing prayer, meaning experiencing the presence of God in their life every moment that they lived. Now, that's the definition of prayer, of attitudinal prayer. But then I think we ought to look at what I would call a description of attitudinal prayer. Definitions lean me a little dry. I'd rather get a word picture. I'd rather see something that illustrates it all most. And so we'll talk about the description of attitudinal prayer. Mary and I used to ride a motorcycle all the time. We've been to Montana, Beartooth Pass a couple of times. Anybody here have been to Beartooth Pass, Montana on a motorcycle? Oh, you haven't lived till you do. Charles Kuralt of CBS says that that Beartooth Drive, Beartooth Mountain, is the number one scenic view in America. 
And I have to say amen to that. I'm telling you, we, there were, I don't know how many switchbacks are up that mountain. It would be wonderful, 75 degrees at the bottom. When you got to the top, it could be sleeting snow. And I'm telling you, you go around that thing. We were on our gold wing. I didn't have the old folks' gold wing. Mine had flames on it. We had surround sound. We'd listen to Mozart for about 30 minutes, you know. And then we'd listen to Alan Jackson because Mary likes uh, classical music and I like country music. And now she likes country and I like classical too. So we, we switched it off. You see why? Because we're in that kind of sharing relationship. We were on that trip. I'll tell you something else we did on that trip. We even once in a while held hands. Yeah, we even talked once in a while. I mean, we really did. We'd be going up that mountain and Creedence Clearwater would come on and Proud Mary would be playing and she'd be beaten to the time of the music on my back. You know, I mean, we were just so close. Now, what I'm trying to say to you is this. There is a biblical sense in which my relationship with God the Father is to have exactly that kind of closeness where when I laugh at a joke, I can share it with him in my heart of heart. I'm not talking about verbalization. I'm not talking about saying words out loud. It's our spirit in tune with him. It's a way of living. That's the description of attitudinal prayer. Think about it this way. Brennan Manning, uh, Brennan Manning says this. Abba Father... And by the way, the Holy Spirit's been given to us so that we may call God Abba Father. Now listen to what Brennan Manning says. Abba Father is a colloquial form of address used by little Jewish children towards their fathers and is best translated Papa or Daddy. Opening the possibilities, Manning says, of undreamed of or unheard of intimacy with God. He goes on to say, Jesus alone knew God as Daddy. No one knows the Father that way except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Well, we have had who the Father really is revealed to Him. Now, to us, now when I was young and a brand new Christian, I didn't like to think of God as a father. I had one who messed it up, didn't need another one, didn't want another one. But ladies and gentlemen, I've discovered that when the Bible talks about a father, uh, God being a father, it's not talking about God being the kind of father we've experienced, good or bad. It's talking about God being the kind of father that every child needs, that every person wants. The closeness of someone who is so special, you can call him daddy. You can call him papa. And that's who the Father in heaven is to every one of us who know the Lord Jesus. Think about this. And by the way, I don't know whether you've ever met Paul Young or not. He's a good friend of ours. He's the author of the book called The Shack. When you get around Paul Young and he's talking with you and you're talking about the Lord, talking about the Father in heaven, he never uses the word uh, Father or Jehovah. He used the word Papa. It's just such a delight because you know of his intimacy in walking in reality with the God of heaven that we're related to because of who Jesus is in our life. Think about it this way. Sitting in a restaurant, 
Most of us like to ask a blessing. I think it's good to thank God for the food you're about to eat. I do. But if you think that thanking God for the food that you're about to eat, the only way you can do it is to bow your head and close your eyes, I think you're mistaken. Mary and I have discovered that if this is real, what I'm talking about, then when we're eating a meal in a restaurant, we can take our glass of water or whatever we're drinking, coffee, whatever, and clink it together and say, man, I'm glad the Lord Jesus is with us. I'm glad the Father is here. Do you understand that's a blessing? Thank you, Lord, for this food, this opportunity. Thank you, Father, for it being real. You see, that's prayer. I was, we were in Norman where we live and several years ago and I was pastor of a little church there and we'd just eaten a meal and Mary and I together and we'd, we'd prayed that way, clinking our glasses, toasting the Lord, whatever you want to call it, but we saw it as recognizing God reality in that moment and thanking Him for it. One of our ladies walked by and she said, Brother Paul, Mary, so good to see you. But she said, I noticed you didn't ask the blessing. I said, well, sure we did. No, you didn't. I watched. You didn't ask the blessing. She said, I didn't see you bow your head. Close your eye. I said, well, we didn't. Oh, you can pray without doing that? Do you understand that if that's the only way you think of prayer, you've missed what the New Testament is talking about? Oftentimes, it's the attitude of your heart and your mind being set on His realness in that moment and thanking Him for it, whether you say it with words or not. With a clink of a glass, we're toasting the Lord Jesus together. That's the description of love. But someone's always going to say, and rightfully so, well, Brother Paul, uh, do we need a quiet time? Do we need a prayer list? Well, that brings me to my third, and that is the discipline of attitudinal prayer. Do we ever need a quiet time? Well, let's think of the Lord Jesus. You can know He lived every moment of His day knowing He was in a relationship with the Father. But there were times when He went early in the morning in the mountain to pray. Of course, it's okay to have a quiet time. It's good to have a quiet time. But what I'm saying is don't ever judge your prayer life based on how many times you have a quiet time. Prayer in the New Testament is so much bigger than that, so much larger than that. It is a lifestyle of living in the reality of God's presence in your heart and in your life. Yeah, there are quiet times. But every moment is a moment of prayer for every believer when you really understand what the word prosuske is, all, is talking about. So someone says, well, Brother Paul, should we have a prayer list? I think it would be good. I really do. Praying for a wife, a spouse, a partner, praying for children, of course. But don't ever identify a prayer list or a quiet time as the only moments of prayer that you ever experience. If you do, you will miss what God intends with an understanding of prayer. So now when someone says, do you believe in prayer? I think if we begin to understand this thing about the atmosphere of the reality of Christ in our life and that He's living in us and we're living in His presence, 
we can honestly say, yes, I experience prayer, and I'm grateful for it. Now, don't hear me say we don't need the quiet times. We don't need the prayer list. But do hear me say we need an understanding of what those 3,000 new converts on that day of Pentecost were beginning to understand. That is to have a heart for the study of the Word, a heart for fellowship with people, and a heart to enjoy the Lord's table, and a heart to experience His reality in our lives every day that we live. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I'll start over and go through it and we'll see if we can find it, what it means. I think you understand what I'm talking about. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants you to be called a person of prayer, but understand that the definition of prayer much broader than what we typically talk about when we speak of prayer. May God grant prayer to be a reality in our lives in every way it's mentioned in the New Testament. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer.